Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian, I'm on the phone with Ashvin, and today we are talking about Gremlins 2, The New Batch from 1990, directed by Joe Dante, written by Charles S. Haas, starring Zach Galligan, Phoebe Cates, and Dick Miller. And in this sequel to 1984's Gremlins, Billy is reunited with his lovable pal Gizmo, which unfortunately leads to hordes of gremlins wreaking havoc in a technologically advanced office building in New York City. Ashvin... This is the last installment of this year's sequel, September. We kicked the month off with Scream 2, which was a meta-commentary on its predecessor and sequels in general. And now I think we fittingly closed the month with a surprisingly meta sequel to Gremlins. Yeah, I'm really surprised. Uh, it's nice to come full circle and see uh, an earlier film that kind of copies uh, a lot of what Scream 2 was doing. Yeah, right? Like seven years earlier? Right, yeah, yeah. I thought I thought like Scream and that whole franchise invented that idea of like kind of making fun of itself, but it's so refreshing to see that in this film. Yeah, it was it was great. I was surprised because I loved this movie as a kid. I watched and rewatched and rewatched and rewatched the VHS, and it was just really fun to go watch it as an adult and pick up on some of these things that just flew way over my head as a kid. I know, I know. Uh, when was the last time you saw this one? I don't know, man. I mean, probably early teens, so 20, 25 years ago. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking the same. I don't think I've seen this one since the 90s. But yeah, I mean, somewhere I, th- I feel like I had this on repeat for a while on VHS, I guess. That makes sense. Yeah, it's a little bit more friendly than the first one, kid-friendly than the first one. Yeah, uh, and I know like with some of the other movies we talked about, like if they truly count as horror, and that kind of that question came to mind uh, sometimes uh, in this one because uh, definitely the first one feels more like adult and horror than this one. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, this and, one's and, way more zany and wacky. Yeah, it is. I think it leans more into like the comedy action territory than horror, right? Sure. Yeah, this is even more of a horror comedy than Gremlins was. Right. Right. Um, and, uh, with Gremlins, what was that again? There, there was like a big talk around like Gremlins was one of the inspirations for the R rating or no, the PG 13 rating, right? Yes. That and Temple of Doom are often credited with the, uh, reasoning behind the PG 13 rating. And so even though we're saying this one's probably more kid friendly, this one is rated PG 13, unlike Gremlins, which was just PG because there had been no PG 13 when Gremlins came out. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Good timing. Yeah. Um, And we've also talked in the past about PG-13 being being like a good good target for getting a lot of money at the box office because you appeal to a wide range of audiences. However, this, while it was still number 29 at the domestic box office, it didn't do nearly as well as the original. The original movie had an $11 million budget with a box office of $212 million which is huge for that budget. And this right. one had a budget of $30 million and only a box office of $41.5 million domestic. That blows me away. Like, uh, do, what, do you, what do you think brought the number down so much? Was it just like the time in between the sequels? I don't know. I think it might have been... That was Joe Dante's opinion, I believe. I think he thought it had been so long since the original that Gremlins had kind of faded from memory. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't, I don't know what else. It, it opened against Dick Tracy, which is funny because I remember seeing Dick Tracy in the theater, but I never saw 
this in the theater, even though I would go on to rewatch this a gazillion times as a kid. Ooh, Dick Tracy was probably a PG, right? Oh, um, that might have been PG thirteen. Shoot, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. If Good it, question. If was, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing because I remember seeing Dick Tracy too, and if it was 1990, uh, and we probably weren't 13 at that point, um, I, I could see like going to Dick Tracy and not this one in theaters. I could see Dick Tracy being rated PG 13 now. I mean, pretty sure that was full of like Tommy guns and stuff like that, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of violence, uh, a lot of shooting in that one. Yeah. So, unfortunately, I don't think Gremlins 2 probably made its money back in its theatrical run. However, who knows on the back end, I'm sure it had a lot of VHS sales, and it probably created some new interest in Gremlins toys, dolls, games, and other merchandise. Mm-hmm. For sure. Which they even hint at in the film. There's a point where someone mentions that Gizmo would be great for merchandising. Oh, yeah. Right, right. Oh, man. That, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, plug. Yeah, yeah, it's referring to itself, as it tends to do. Um, It did do better than other horror sequels that were released the same year, like Child's Play 2, Predator 2, and The Exorcist 3. It had a rating of 71 on Rotten Tomatoes with a 57% user score, uh, which Mm -hmm. is surprising. I would have thought it kind of would have been flipped. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. I, I thought uh, audiences would have loved this one. I was actually, I, I thought overall the audience or, or the critic response was kind of lower than I would have expected. Because the original, is that like in the 80s or 90s, I imagine? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So th- this one uh, wasn't as loved by critics or audiences? Yeah, the original was 85% critics and 78% audiences. Okay. And here this you're like, one's 71% critics and 57% audience. Damn. Harsh. Yeah. Um, the effects were done by Rick Baker, who we've discussed a few times on this spo- show, especially in our episode on An American Werewolf in London, for which he won his first of many Academy Awards. And the creature crew on this looked to be like nearly a hundred people, if not more, in the credits. I don't know if you noticed that. Oh, no, I didn't. When you say creature crew, are these the people who were like behind the scenes of these puppets? Yeah, people working on the puppets, manning the puppets, etc. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess that makes sense because you had so many more gremlins in this one, right, than the first one? There were a lot of gremlins, yeah. And I yeah. think not only did the... I mean, the first one had a lot of gremlins, but this one had a lot that were distinct, so you probably couldn't really reuse puppets. Like, they were characters. They were specific designs. Oh, yeah, right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more more interesting. Okay, uh, Yeah, gremlins. I, yeah, I don't remember that in the first one, and I, I think they kind of had a good setup for, like, why you had weird gremlins in this one yeah they really did thanks for that lad yeah um speaking of different designs for the gremlins have you seen the key and peel skit about gremlins too (laughs) no i haven't so we're checking out oh man whitney showed it to me whitney of lights camera no and scoops ahoy at stranger things podcast she sent it to me and yes if you're listening and you're near your phone and can pause and watch that skit just go look up Key and Peel Gremlins 2 on YouTube. And it's the premise is the writers are sitting in the writer's room in 1989 or whatever, coming up with the plot for Gremlins 2. And Jordan Peel walks in as like this script doctor. And he's mm-hmm. like, let's mix it up. Everyone gets to design their own gremlin. And then they go around <laughs> the room all just saying like the stupidest shit. And he's like, it's in the movie. 
<laughs> that's kind of that doesn't seem too far off from what happened yeah here. like and then the skit ends with like that's all actually in the movie oh man that's which hilarious. blew my wife away because she had never seen this movie and led to her actually watching this with me a rare HMC moment where my wife watches a movie with me oh nice nice you know, yeah, yeah I, I I watched the second half with my wife. I started the first half during working hours, and then the second half, uh, my wife joined me too. This this one, I I feel like is pretty family friendly. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's an easy easy viewing. It is. Um, going back to that Baker guy, though, are you surprised he's tied to this franchise? Um, not really. Why would I be? Uh, just because he's like this, uh, he's like won a number of awards. He's done like American World from Paris, and he got like a bunch of acclaim for that. And he wasn't part of the original, and now he's like coming into the sequel. Like I, I don't know. I was just really surprised that they were able to get someone like him on, onto this film, which you know is a, a much different caliber of uh, special effects compared to like some of those works. Oh, gotcha. I don't know, man. The Gremlins look really good, and you know, to be fair, he did deny them at first. Yeah. Um, but then once he heard that they'd be able to be more specific with the Gremlins design and he'd be able to do his own thing and design some new ones, mm-hmm. then he was interested. So to your point, yeah, yeah, he was looking for exciting things to do. I think he hesitated because it wasn't something that was his going to be his original design. He was right. kind of taking the torch from somebody else. Yeah, and and they did look great. Like, I mean, I, I think that, uh, he did an incredible job. But um, if you were like, I, I mean, when I watched this one, I assumed it was the same person who did the ones on the first one. I, I didn't see like a huge departure. I mean, obviously you have those few that are different characters and they have so, uh, different like body parts and stuff. But outside of that, like it felt pretty consistent. Uh, Gremlin wise, did you notice a big difference? It did feel consistent, but you did get to work. I mean, some of them just had slightly different faces, but then you had like the spider gremlin and the bat gremlin. Yeah. Spider gremlin especially was uh, uh, quite an ordeal to make, I would assume. It's pretty different compared to what they had done. Yeah, it's really cool they they brought him in. Yeah, and uh, Chris Wallace was the guy who originally designed the gremlins for the first film. Got it. And he he worked on, he's gone on to work on a bunch of stuff too. he worked on E.T., Return of the Jedi, The Fly, Arachnophobia, and, and yeah, Baker's. Rick Baker, who did him in this one, is, as I mentioned, won multiple Academy Awards for Best Makeup. Yeah, he did, he did The Nutty Professor. Oh, uh, nice. Did that one win? <laughs> uh, I think he got nominated uh, for that. I'm not sure if he won, but I mean, how many versions of Eddie Murphy were in that one? That's <laughs> right. impressive. It's yeah. a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, some notable guest appearances and, and voice work. Howie Mandel returned to voice Gizmo. Tony Randall, the star of TV's The Odd Couple, is the voice of the brainy gremlin. <laughs> and yeah. the guy who voiced Mohawk, his name is Frank Welker, and he is a prolific voice actor. And, dude, if you look him up on IMDb, he's got one of the longest pages I've ever seen. Really? What else he's he He's just, don't know, if, like any cartoon you ever watched as a kid, he probably did one of the voices. Um, but I think most notably he voiced Fred in the original 1969 run of Scooby-Doo and then continued to do it for quite a long time. Okay. And then he took over as the voice of Scooby since 2002 and has been ever since. Oh, the voice But there's so many beloved childhood cartoons where he did like two or three of the voices in them even. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Cool. And he was, uh, he was Spike? Uh, Mohawk. Mohawk. Okay, yeah, that's yeah. the same. Okay, cool. 
Um, what else, man? Did you notice that Daniel Clamp, the like quote unquote villain, was kind of a play on Donald Trump? Oh no, I didn't realize that. But now that you say that, yeah, kind of like a, a real estate mogul or whatever. Yeah, Daniel Clamp, Donald Trump. It, it's similar. He was supposed to be a combination of Trump and Ted Turner. Oh, nice, nice. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Did you? I I was surprised to see Christopher Columbus wasn't uh, really involved in this film because he was like a the screenwriter, I think, for the first one, right? Yeah, right. He wrote the first one. He he didn't have anything to do with this one. His only credit is based on characters created by Christopher Columbus. Yeah, I'm surprised they wouldn't bring him back. And it sounds like he's maybe on board for the third one, which is in production right now. Yeah, supposedly he's written or is writing a script to the third one. Um, it, it just It's one of those things where it sounds so iffy, you hesitate to even talk about it. But Yeah. Um, the, yeah, they were supposedly working out some rights issues, but who knows if we'll ever get that. And there's supposed to be an animated series coming to HBO Max in 2021, but... Hmm. Um, I haven't heard about that in a while, so I don't know if that's still on pace for 2021 or what. Yeah, okay. Okay, cool. And then, uh, nice to see at least uh, from a director standpoint, there's some consistency here. They got Joe Dante again. Yeah, and he, uh, not unlike Rick Baker, was hesitant to do it at first, but they, he declined originally, and they eventually came back to him with a proposal that he could have complete creative control, which is part of why this movie is so wacky and off the beaten path for a big studio production uh, and they also gave him three times the budget of the first film so yeah 30 million dollars yeah big. that's awesome yeah he, he got a good deal i think from this like uh, i get to make the movie i want and uh i'm just gonna do whatever i want to do here yeah and it's regardless of its poor performance at the box office it's so cool that this movie exists like as such this silly weird one-off thing that is really quite a big production when you think about all the all the gags in this movie and all the set pieces like <laughs> yeah it's not something that they would spend that kind of money on today right right yeah <laughs> uh you, you think looking back the studio probably sees this as a failure um i don't know man it really depends on how much it spurred the purchasing of other things the games the merchandise mm-hmm. the toys yeah. etc yeah. I don't have any numbers on that. I imagine it it gave it a little bit of a boost. Okay. And helped yeah. maybe a new generation of kids rediscover the first one. Yeah, yeah. Cause I, uh, yeah, I, th- I feel like with this difference, I mean, Gremlins probably came out like uh, probably around the time we were born. So I don't know. 1984. Yeah. Did you see Gremlins 1 like way earlier than you saw this one or was it like kind of back to back? Because um, I, I don't really remember like the if I saw it like much before I saw this one. I think I saw Gremlins first, but I was just pretty young and not really that interested in it. But then Gremlins two is what what got me. I watched yeah Gremlins two way more than Gremlins, so I probably had some Gremlins merchandise that I wouldn't have had uh, aside if Gremlins two had never been released. Yeah, yeah, I feel like this one was aimed at like the '90s kids, basically. And, yeah, uh, pro- probably you're right. Like had a good merchandise boost yeah. there. Um, yeah, agreed. And, and just in general, I feel, I feel like sequels. Uh, I don't know if it was like that time period and stuff, but uh, sequels, like when we were young in like the late '80s, early '90s, and stuff, they, it was always like take the original movie, add like a bigger budget to it, and like just go way uh, bigger. And that formula seemed to work really well in that period, didn't it? Like with Terminator Two. Um, Aliens, obviously. Uh, I, I just feel like sequels were kind of the rage back then. 
Yeah, right? And there was a kind of a streak of sequels that kind of, they made some good choices. It's like they expanded the world and went harder and faster, and, and it worked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like really blockbustery. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a good formula back then. Right, right. Maybe you, not for you, this movie. This movie did not follow a formula, though, aside from <laughs> increasing the budget. Yeah, yeah, exactly, which, which is cool. Do you feel like sequels today have the same type of, uh, uh, like, draw as sequels did in, like, the late 80s, early 90s? Hmm. I think people got so jaded by sequel overload in the 80s and 90s that people don't have... Everyone's kind of skeptical when they hear a sequel is coming out to a beloved movie. Yeah, it's almost like a bad thing now. Like if uh, a movie you like suddenly, like a part two is coming out, then you're like, oh shit, they're gonna like ruin it, right? Or crash right, the party. and there's a lot of pressure, and there probably was back then too to be like, well, are you gonna do something new and exciting, or are you gonna ruin it? Are you gonna yeah keep it the same but not too much the same? Like it's a fine line to walk. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It is. But uh, yeah, this seemed like kind of like the height of like a sequel culture. Um, yeah. That, that this time period. Yeah, the, this may have been the epitome of sequels. <laughs> yeah. Um, because yeah, I think around this time you were still getting some sequels to like the big three slashers and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think that the sequel fatigue was already there. Right. Right. Um, action movies like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was probably having some sequels around this time. Mm, Yeah. Um, yeah, I just remember like it being this age and like loving it when like you'd hear like, oh, part two's coming out. And usually like you'd assume part two, bigger budget, like cooler bad guys, whatever. And I feel like this one kind of, uh, did some of that. Yeah, I think so. I think Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the first live action movie came out this same year, 1990, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, really? Okay. Okay. I think so. Yeah. Um, I wonder Ghostbusters too, if that was uh, earlier before, what, any guesses? Oh, can't remember. I think. Thing yeah. I want to say before, but I'm not sure. All right, we got to get to that franchise sometime. Yeah, we should. We should. That'd be fun. Yeah. Um, we talked about this in our first episode, but the concept of or our episode on Gremlins, that is, the concept of Gremlins was conceived in World War II as a silly explanation for mechanical failures in mm-hmm. British aircraft. That was the U.S. explanation for failures in British aircraft. And I think it's really cool as an adult, something I never picked up on and didn't even really pick up on until we analyzed these for the podcast, that a lot of the chaos that happens in the first movie and in this movie is based around technology and the gremlins getting their hands upon a certain technology and wreaking havoc with it. Oh, yeah. Right, right. It just kind of, it almost makes it like a lo-fi tech horror in a way. Like, because <laughs> when you think about it, like, the bulldozer or whatever, or the p- snowplow from the first one. Like, it's mm-hmm. not something we think of as technology, but it is technology. Right, and the traffic lights. Yeah, um, right? Yep. Yeah, there, there are a few other things in the first one. Yeah, the chair that goes up and down the steps. Oh, right, yeah. For the villain in the first one. Wow, really interesting. Tech horror, wow. It's like this weird brand of tech horror. I think you could say on some level, since gremlins themselves invented in the 40s, I think maybe could represent on some subconscious level like the innate fear of technology. Dude, if they do bring that back, uh, like do a modern one, could you imagine like, uh, like would they go to like malware or like uh, uh, something more like uh, email or like uh, cloud-based oriented? <laughs> like. Wait, where, where, would they, where would that take that, like, in, in modern times if they were to do gremlins right now? 
right? I feel like it'd be easy to mess up the franchise with that. I think that I've read Christopher Columbus say his script that he's working on has something to do with the like question of do you kill Gizmo so that none of this happens in the future. Oh, Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, even the name Gizmo, though, I think that kind of ties to your point uh, exactly. about this being all technology. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yep, and the 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 dad from the first one was an inventor. He was. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so interesting. So, so these are all just like a metaphors of technological errors. <laughs> right. I That's feel like both of these movies are just kind of smarter than you think they are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my, my assumption with the first one and in this one a little bit, I, and I think there's only one character that brings out a lot of this, uh, idea is that these kind of tied to like, uh, foreign made, uh, technology or, uh, foreigners in the country and that kind of thing. I think most of that one character, uh, always kind of like, is, is like, where like, ah, oh, these like German imports or whatever. And, uh, him tying the idea of like gremlins to like, uh, foreign engineering and stuff. So I, right. I was kind of yeah. I, there could be some like xenophobia baked in, especially yeah. That was Futterman's character in the first one. Yeah, yeah. It, it felt less here, but here I think it was more like a commentary on like New York and like the the cultural diversity there. But um, yeah, I, I think both are pretty interesting views of it. Yeah, right. I think even in this one they ha- kind of have themes of like you know white uh, white money and investment and how that interacts with with other cultures and stuff like that. Oh, but we'll yeah, get to yeah. all that. Okay, yeah. Sounds uh, good. Anything else before we start spoiling some stuff? Um, No, I think I think we hit all my notes. What, how about you? I think the only thing I've got left is our Ohio connection. Our friend Alex connects every movie we watch to our home state of Ohio for us. Alex owns the jukebox, bar, and restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio. Head on up there and get a beer and some food on their patio before the weather gets cold. And Alex says... Gremlins 2, The New Batch, is a 1990 comedy horror sequel in which the Mogwai creature Gizmo multiplies, this time within a skyscraper in New York City. It features a slew of cameos, no doubt piggybacking off the success from the first film. These appearances include director Joe Dante as a director for the in-movie TV show Grandpa Fred, film composer Jerry Goldsmith as a yogurt customer, plus pro wrestler Hulk Hogan, film critic Leonard Maltin, and former NFL footballers Bubba Smith and Dick Buckus, who all play themselves. Dick Butkus helped define the position of linebacker in the 60s and 70s, first as a two-time collegiate All-American for the University of Illinois, followed by an illustrious career in the NFL with the Chicago Bears, where he was five-time first-team All-Pro. In 1979, Dick Butkus was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame located in Canton, Ohio. <laughs> nice sports. I love when he does sports ones because it's something we would have never, ever gotten. <laughs> I know. I know. We don't really have too much to comment <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> uh, hey, you ever listened to the band Mogway? Um, I feel like I've tried a couple times and never gotten into it. How about you? Oh, I like them a lot. I think I think they're pretty cool. I think they're Scottish though, but uh, good good band. But uh, you yeah, sound good... like Futterman. Oh, yeah, I know those they're foreign Scottish. bands. <laughs> yeah, European nonsense. Damn foreign band. <laughs> uh, but damn, yeah, good good connection there. Yeah, That's thank football. you, Alex. Thanks. Um, all right, listeners. Well, now is the time where we begin our plot walkthrough and review it. So if you haven't seen the film, now's the time to duck out. But Ashwin, before we do all that, do you mind if I take a quick break? The power's flickering on and off in this room I'm in, and I'm going to go try to figure out why. Oh, weird. Okay, sure. Go for it.
All right, cool. I'll be right back. All right. All right, man, I'm back. Hey, everything okay? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I went in and opened the uh, circuit breaker box, and when I did, this bolt of electricity just started darting around the room making all sorts of wacky noises. <laughs> was, was it on hold for a long time or something? <laughs> yeah, I guess. It was pissed <laughs> off. Yeah, so I trapped it in that. the TV for now, and I, I guess I'll just keep it there until I figure out what to do with it. Uh, okay, okay. Just make sure you don't change the channel. Yeah, it's a good point. <laughs> I I love all the places they went with these gremlins. <laughs> in, like that key no... and, in that Key and Peele sketch, one of the writers just goes, electricity gremlin? And <laughs> Jordan Peele's like, you just said noun and gremlin, like some sort of psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's so sad, but true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's crazy where they went. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk about whether it all works and how. Okay, well, speaking of strange, this movie kicks off with the Warner Brothers logo in the same style as Looney Tunes, and Daffy and Bugs Bunny appear on screen arguing over who gets to do the intro. So this immediately sets the tone for the movie, letting you know this is going to be even more jokey than the first one. And in the actual... Oh, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, was this a common thing with WB films back then? Like you'd have an animated sequence in advance? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay, so this, this was unique to this movie. I don't. I mean, I don't think it was uncommon for that Warner Brothers thing to be. No, that wasn't edited. They had like a more professional version of the logo. It didn't like boing onto the screen through that like red circle that it does in the Looney Tunes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So wow, that's interesting. That uh, they they would have had this like animation sequence up front. Yeah. Yeah. It is strange. And the animation sequences in this were directed by Chuck Jones. Oh, okay. Of Looney Tunes fame. Um, But in the actual intro to the film, we get some establishing shots of New York City and Chinatown, and we enter Mr. Wing's shop from the first film, where a real estate developer named Daniel Clamp is trying to convince him, via a pre-recorded VHS of himself, to sell (laughs) his property to Daniel Clamp so that he can build a business center on the spot. Um And I think there's definitely some commentary here on real estate development and possibly even fitting with the Candyman theme, gentrification. Um, He's got this goal to make like some sort of weird uh, business center that has like Chinese culture embedded into the architecture or something. And the tagline for it is where business gets oriented. Yeah, I know. I feel like they use the word oriented a few times here. And yeah, it, it was a, a little jar- jarring, right? I think Mr. Wang cringes a few times. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, um, yeah, no, the, 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 very gentrification, especially like New York City, like trying to buy up uh, these kind of neighborhoods to, to develop stuff. It makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, and that's a really big problem right now, the gentrification of Chinatown. I, I feel like people are kind of worried that Chinatown is disappearing. In New York City? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, also, I didn't realize the real estate developer was the villain from the first one as well. Oh, that I thought that guy was more of like a banker. He was a real estate developer? Yeah, that, it was a lady, remember? Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. 
Oh, yeah, she's I'm a real pretty sure developer? she was a real estate developer, and I feel like maybe she was gonna end up trying to. She was trying to buy the bar that Kate worked at, or something. Yeah, that sounds vaguely familiar. Okay. Um, Mr. Wing denies Clamp yet again. It's not the first time Clamp has asked, and Gizmo in the background turns on Rambo on the TV, which is a bit of foreshadowing for something to come later. Unfortunately, six weeks later, Mr. Wing passes away, making way for the demolition of his shop. Gizmo flees the wreckage as a wrecking ball crashes through the ceiling, and he is discovered by two scientists who work for a genetic lab housed in Daniel Clamp's state-of-the-art technologically advanced skyscraper known as Clamp Center. And we learn that Billy is now an architect living in NYC, working for Daniel Clamp, and Kate is also employed by the company as a Clamp Center tour guide. And Billy hears a delivery man whistling Gizmo's tune and learns that the guy must have heard it making a delivery upstairs at the genetic laboratory. He, of course, sneaks into the laboratory, finds Gizmo, and stashes him in his desk drawer until he can come back to get him later after his dinner meeting with his boss, Marla. Ashwin, I had the biggest crush on Marla as a kid. Oh, man, she was she was like a pretty sexy, right, with that lipstick and stuff? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's the first time you've come come out and called somebody sexy on the show. I know. <laughs> it's not a word I used to often, but yeah, seeing her like brought back a lot of old feelings that I forgot about. Yeah. Uh, Same yeah. here, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like she smokes, she wears like this cool lipstick, she uh hangs out at like neat restaurants. She was she was pretty baller, I think, for her time. She was pretty baller. Yeah. I I think even as a kid I was attracted to the confidence and just didn't know it. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. It's like this weird feeling that like uh, we didn't understand as kids, and now like watching it, like, oh yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> Sexy is the word I was looking for back then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did you say she goes to fancy restaurants? Yeah, she went to like that Canadian <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> it's a Canadian restaurant where the servers dress as Mounties. <laughs> yeah, I want to go there. That Real looks fucking awesome. fancy. Yeah, yeah. actually, I mean, I would, I would totally go there. Yeah. And no yeah. offense, Canada. You, we're not saying you're not fancy. Yeah, yeah. And this is like <laughs> the guy's dressed like, and he, he even, he's even like saying like a, and he's got like the, uh, like the desserts like a moose or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he like offers them an antler. Yeah, <laughs> so good. Um, so all bro- hell breaks loose um, when a maintenance man inadvertently squirts Gizmo with water as he tries to repair a water fountain. Gizmo's progeny are spawned. They lock him in the ventilation system, and then they go downstairs and pick out at the food court after midnight, sparking the first waves of panic in the building as they are seen by some of the building's guests. Uh, Billy sends Kate to the office to pick up Gizmo, and she unwittingly picks up the quote-unquote Daffy Gremlin, mistaking it for Gizmo. Uh, they call it googly-eyed Gremlin in the Key and Peel sketch. Oh, hilarious. I, I and, liked uh, how... I, I liked how each of these gremlins were, like, so different and had their own, like, personalities compared to in the first one, not so much, right? Yeah, in the first one, they really didn't, aside from Stripe. Stripe and Gizmo were kind of the only distinguishable ones. Yeah, yeah, and here you have, like, this uh, goofy one that's just, like, uh, yeah, the anti-Gizmo. Yeah. Um, so Billy comes back home to their apartment and realizes exactly what's happened once he sees that this is clearly not Gizmo that Kate brought back. Um, He's so- also... He's also got that uh, a lipstick stain on his cheek, right? He does. This is a little bit of a subplot. At at dinner, uh, Marla kind of like sticks her foot in his crotch and then like kisses him, and he kind of like 
scutters away. He's he's not down with this. He's obviously loyal to Kate, and he's just feels awkward and flees the scene of this dinner. So he comes home with lipstick on his face, and and Kate gets suspicious. She gets suspicious, but like I feel like she never really confronts him about this, which which kind of uh, bummed me out a little bit. Yeah, she kind of just like lets it simmer in the background and is like putting it off. But in in all fairness, there's a lot else going on. Like, sure. they just brought home Gizmo who's throwing shit everywhere and then she realizes, no, it's not Gizmo. Yeah. The Futtermans knock on the door. They were going to visit NYC and they're here early. And so they have to, like, get rid of them and, like, not cause any panic and make up a lie about the building being fumigated and try to get them to stay at a hotel. Um, This scene, actually, where the Futtermans come in, I thought was really well written, acted, and directed. It was just like really snappy dialogue and a lot of fun. Between uh, Billy, his girlfriend, and the Futtermans? Yeah, yeah. I don't know why. It just struck me as something from like a play or like a classic Hollywood film. Just like such a classic conundrum of like someone showed up early and you're trying to get rid of them and just, I don't know, it was zippy and charming. (laughs) Yeah, you can kind of like feel their stress too with it. And yeah. uh, how like the Futtermans like coming? Where the Futtermans and 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 Billy and uh, his girlfriend? Where, where, where are they from? Like, uh, do you remember? The... I think it's a small town called Kingston Falls. I I assume it's in upstate New York, but I'm not sure what state it's in. Okay, yeah, yeah. But I I, I like this conversation too because it's kind of like that that country bumpkin kind of coming to the big city. They're really excited to be there. The the bright flashing camera. And right. it's like even commenting about like, oh, uh, I had a Russian cab driver and that kind of thing. So yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, I like their like reactions, like the big city. And I, I feel like we're already getting a lot of commentary, even from like Billy and, and their conversations around like, oh, everyone here is like so busy and stuff. Um, it, it, I feel like the scene kind of just drives home that narrative around big city is so different compared to where they're coming from. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, so... They get rid of the Futtermans. Billy goes back to the building, and he tries to convince the staff that these creatures exist and that the building needs to be closed down. He tells them about the three rules from the first film, and they engage in this meta-commentary about the rules. Like, well, what if one of them gets stuck in something stuck in their teeth and it goes down their throat after midnight? Or what if they're on an airplane changing time zones? Did you find this conversation satisfying since it's hard to not pick at the Gremlins' rules as a fan? Yeah, this party killed me, man. This is so good. <laughs> Did you like this? Yeah, I found it pretty amusing and and satisfying. I mean, it scratches that itch. It's it's commenting on something that for seven years he probably or six years Joe Dante had probably heard about. <laughs> I know, and that, that's what's like so genius about it. Is he like brought them like right into the movie? Like he wasn't like scared to like address these kind of questions that the the, the or like the flaw, the lo- logics and the flaw and stuff. So, so, yeah, so yeah, such a clever is... way to bring that. This is not the first time he does it, and this is my second favorite moment where he does it. There's one towards the end of the movie that I was just like, holy shit, I can't believe they just did that, and I never <laughs> caught it as a kid. Yeah, yeah. All right, I'm excited to hear what that one was. Yeah. Um, but these these naysayers are punished. Mohawk emerges from the control panels. This, they're in like the security center of the building and starts biting one of them, and they finally get rid of it. I think Billy shines a bright light on something. Um or shines a bright light on it. And this is when the staff like is starting to take things seriously. They realize there's a problem here. The gremlins also start a fire on a cooking show, which causes the sprinkler system to activate, causing the gremlins to spawn even more gremlins. And the building is mostly evacuated, uh, except for a few 
core characters, and they continue to try to survive in the building and figure out how to keep the gremlins from getting outside into the city once night falls. Uh, which I feel like this is a good premise, right? Like they've scaled it up from this small town to New York City, but then to keep it from getting too crazy and big, they've got to keep them in this building with the threat that if they get out into New York City, all hell's going to break loose. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I think in the first one, it was easy because you had a small town, and so they got out there, and they, like, kind of took over the town and brought mayhem. But, like, yeah, New York City, that's, like, the last thing you want. And this this premise, I think, works. Like, let's try to keep them as contained as possible. Yeah. Um, and hijinks ensue. A notable scene involves the gremlins running amok at the genetics lab where those two people took Gizmo when they found him. The genetics lab is called Splice of Life. Uh, and the gremlins all drink all sorts of serums. A brain serum makes one of them smart and be able to speak very clearly and intellectually. Uh, he's the one that's voiced by Tony Randall. Mohawk takes a spider serum, which eventually will turn him into a giant spider. One of them turns into a bat and then is injected with genetic sunblock by a brainy gremlin, allowing him to fly outside in the sunlight. And this is where you get a key moment from Futterman. This thing flies out into the daylight and, daylight and attacks him, and he shoves it into some wet cement, and it flies away and hardens into a gargoyle on the side of a building. That was really cool, because, like, yeah, the, the threat the whole time is they can't get out of the building, and this one gets out, and then, uh, yeah, really, really cool kind of attack scene here. I think so, too, because Futterman's kind of... He's got, like, a complete arc in this movie. He's traumatized. They set it up in that first scene in Billy's apartment, from the first one he had like a bit of a mental breakdown and had to go to therapy he's just now starting to get better but then he like acts in the moment that he needs to and he kills this gremlin that's really kind of the biggest threat to the city throughout the course of the plot because it he's gotten this injection where sun doesn't bother him so right there's no limits to what this gremlin could have done but futterman saved the day yeah, I was surprised how short-lived this gremlin was, though, uh, given, like, that threat. Like, uh, yeah, they could have done amazing things, but pretty <laughs> cut down pretty quick. Does does the, the arc of, Fetter, of, of, of of this guy, Futterman, is that his name? Futterman, yeah. Yeah, because uh, I, I feel like even the first one, he's, he's, he's like a vet, right? He's already kind of traumatized, and he kind of, like, I, I don't know, like, is it safe to say he has, like, PTSD or something? Hmm, good question. Yeah, was he a Vietnam vet or something? I think so. The way he was like brings up wars and like fighting others and like how he compares the gremlins to like German engineering and stuff. Like he, he's he's got like this very uh, xenophobic kind of mentality where he's like scared of anything that's like made uh, internationally. Uh, and and he's one in New York, kind of being like, oh, these these Russian cab drivers and whatever. So I, I just always assume like he's kind of like this guy who's like scared of anything that's not American, and and like the gremlins represent like that fear for him. Yeah, yeah, maybe. That's that's a fair fair assumption. And I this was the 80s when the first one came out, like Cold War era, so I yeah. feel like that sentiment probably wasn't uncommon. Right, right. I feel like he kind of embodies that for sure. Sure. Um, there's also a gremlin who takes a serum or something. I can't remember what causes him to become a bolt of electricity, um, which Billy eventually tames by trapping inside a phone line in Clamp's office and putting the call on hold. <laughs> and his expression when it gets put on hold and he hears the hold music uh, it's just like torture super frustrated yeah yeah 
<clears throat> there's also this really zany fourth wall breaking scene where like you see the film deteriorate and the like gremlins are making shadow puppets and then they like go into the movie and get Hulk Hogan who's a member of the audience to intimidate the gremlins into putting the movie back on <laughs> <laughs> I, that's did wild you appreci- yeah did you appreciate this as a kid because I, I don't feel like I appreciated that at all well man I did not see this scene as a kid I'd never realized this but that was what happened in the theatrical version and what can now be rented from you know the internet places but in the VHS version that I assume you and I both watched this scene wasn't there it was a scene with John Wayne being meta and he was asking the gremlins to get back to the movie and I think there was also a clip of Bugs Bunny facing off against the gremlin from an old gremlins cartoon Oh, interesting. So I don't think Hulk Hogan was in the version we watched as kids. Yeah, yeah, because I, I didn't remember this at all, and I, I, it killed me. It was hilarious. Same. Yeah, I was wondering why I didn't remember it, and then I read that um, in our research, and that that was yeah. really interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you think you'd remember seeing Hulk Hogan in this film, but it right. was so random. Especially in 1990. Right, right. That was, that was like his peak time. Right? Peak Hogan. Yeah. Billy devises a plan to convince the gremlins that it's later than it truly is. He wants to make them think the sun is about to set. So he gets Daniel Clamp to turn the clocks forward in the building a few hours so that Clamp can go outside, hang a heavy painted canvas over the lobby windows to make it look like it's nighttime, and then he'll remove it once all the gremlins have gathered in the lobby, which would let in the sunlight, which would kill them. Along the way, Marla and Kate are attacked by Mohawk, who has turned himself into a giant spider gremlin by drinking that experimental concoction. Uh, Gizmo saves the day by donning Rambo attire and shooting a flaming arrow at Mohawk. And I thought this scene was actually kind of, like, scary. Yeah, I, th- I think this is probably, like, the scariest sequence in this film, uh, between this one and, and, like, when he's in the dentist chair. But, yeah, the spider gremlin, like, that that's pretty chilling, isn't it? It really is, and it looked good, man, and and scary. Looks good, and I, I think the sound effects too were, were really good here. They had like some uh, like spider sounds, which are, uh, I don't I don't know. Spider makes spiders make a lot of sounds, right? But... It's just like this weird like rattling type sound that yeah gives you chills. Yeah, it worked. It worked pretty well. Um, and yeah, Billy gets knocked unconscious by googly eyed gremlin and. He's about to do some crazy dentist work, but Futterman finds his way into the building and saves the day, saves Billy from this. And then they all reunite um, in the like area where Marla and Kate were trapped in the spider webs. And you get a scene here where, for some reason, Futterman mentions Abraham Lincoln. And Kate goes, oh, please don't mention Lincoln. Something ter- terrible happened to me as a child on Lincoln's birthday. <laughs> and she starts going into this whole story, and it's just totally a riff on the weird Santa Claus thing from the yeah. first movie where she says her dad died pretending to be Santa Claus, oh which my is just God. Some of, one of the weirdest, oddest, darkest things to put in the first movie. And it's just so funny that they spoof it here, and then Billy just kind of like escorts her off the screen so nobody has to hear the story. <laughs> I love they brought that back, but I, I was bummed they didn't let her finish the the story. I thought she'd give another like really like disturbing story, but... traumatic story. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I love they, they, they how they pay tribute to that one. Yeah, that was my favorite meta moment. Oh, nice, nice. Uh, things don't go according to plan once a storm moves in and the sky becomes overcast. 
Billy, thinking on his feet, directs Futterman to point a fire hose into the lobby where the gremlins have gathered. And on Billy's signal, Futterman soaks the gremlins. They're all starting to do their weird spawning thing, while Kate transfers a call from Clamp's office where the electricity gremlin is trapped on hold. And when the call is transferred into the lobby, electricity gremlin shoots out into the soaking wet gremlins, electrocuting every last one of them except for the lady gremlin, who's upstairs getting it on with the villainous Forrester, who's Clamp's right-hand man. Um, So every gremlin gets electrocuted here. Uh, As things are wrapping up, Clamp realizes his tech-heavy project was doomed to fail, and upon seeing Billy's drawing of his hometown, Kingston Falls, he decides to buy the design from Billy and have Billy help to build it as a quaint little town. He promotes Marled ahead of PR. He promotes Grandpa Fred, who we haven't talked about, but was kind of a side character this whole time, to a news anchor. And all is right in the world as Kate, Billy, and Gizmo head back to their apartment. Yep. And that's the end. And we see Daffy appear a few more times in the end credits. Oh, you know, I, I, I missed that. Uh, was it? I heard he was just like kind of uh, making fun of the credits or something. Yeah, he's kind of making fun of how long the credits were. And then at the very end of the credits... Porky Pig pops up to do the that's all, folks, and Daffy gets jealous and, like, knocks him out of it and says he wants to do it. Oh, okay, okay. That's funny. Yeah. Um, what did you think of this movie? Uh, this was this was a lot of fun. I feel like I uh, really appreciated this, I think, more than I probably did as a kid watching this because uh, it is so meta, and I loved all the digs at, like, part one, which it's so rare. I mean, I, I know we talked about Scream 2 being kind of meta, but this one, I feel like it takes a you know a few steps further in terms of making fun of the first one. I love the scene like where they have the critic who like uh, w- w- like one real life critic I think who hammered part one is actually in this one and he's sitting there like ripping up the first one and then the gremlins attack him, uh, which was, was so great. And then all those other meta scenes you mentioned were so good. I almost felt like every scene in this had something really funny going on in the background, whether it was like making fun of the automation of the building or just like great jokes uh, throughout, which like worked at like multiple levels. So it just felt like a really smart film overall and uh, great and like really self-aware. Um, so yeah, I, I really had a good time. What about you? I agree, man. I think this movie was smarter than I expected to be because it's really dumb in a lot of ways, too. Like, it's got a lot of, like, gremlins hitting each other on the head with sledgehammers and stupid stuff like that. But there is a lot of intelligent meta stuff going on, like you said. Um, And there's... Oh, shit. Something you said triggered a memory that I completely lost. Oh, yeah, like the stuff, technological stuff going on in the building was funny, like... And the building had high standards for how they wanted everyone to be. <laughs> I think at one point in the background, there was an announcement that said, like, a car with license plate, blah, blah, blah. Please remove your car from the lot. Your car is old and dirty. Yeah. <laughs> I loved that. That was good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really smart. Um, and I think, like, it has some deeper levels of commentary on that note. There is a scene where Billy's being instructed to, like, take down his drawing of Kingston Falls. Like, he can only have approved art. He's not allowed to have any plants in his cubicle. So I think there was a bit of a hum- commentary on the homogenization of society and of culture due to big corporate interests. Like, with the whole um, where business gets oriented thing. You know, Clamp's, Clamp's idea for Chinatown to make it into his idea of what a business center should be and his corporation and how everything had to fall in line. And I just think about how 
I feel like it's a common cultural conversation now to talk about how you go into small towns in America and some of them are all starting to look the same, right? There's a McDonald's on every corner. Um, so I think it was kind of a commentary against big business and versus the little guy, you know, and we, as you talked about big city versus a small town. And in the end, Clamp realizes this building was doomed from the start and he sees this charming town, Kingston Falls, and he wants to he wants to build that. To build it, yeah. Is, isn't yeah. that kind of a similar theme to the first one as well? Because I, I remember the first one, the guy doesn't want to sell uh, Gizmo, but the other guy who's like the inventor and stuff, he really he like forces like the guy to... Or I, th- I forget if like yeah, how he buys it. I think his nephew or someone, grandson or something. But the whole idea of like American capitalism against uh, like the smaller guy, right? Right. And yeah, and even like the white band's interference with other cultures that he doesn't understand. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I think they took that to like a bigger level in this one with yeah. uh, Clamp. Right, I agree. Um, I also really like, some critics did not like, they called it a recycled plot, which is true. Like you've got the real estate developer as the villain, you've got all the same mechanisms, but I think it successfully upscaled itself uh, by doing this New York City skyscraper while at the same time keeping it confined and reasonable that part of the plot is that they got to keep them in the building. They keep the technology thing rolling with this advanced building. Um, again, they have a real estate developer, but it's not the, you know, lady, the stingy lady in the small town who's a banker. It's like a Donald Trump type. So even though it's a bit recycled, I, I think they, they, like you said, they went bigger and harder and uh, it was original enough to make it work. I thought so too. I thought they didn't. Uh, I didn't feel like it was very repetitive from the first one. They introduced like enough new elements and a whole like different uh, brand of comedy in this one that uh, I, I felt like it was, it was very differentiated from the first one. Uh, did, did you? I think so too. Yeah. I mean, the fact that it just does it takes so many chances and do, does so many things that are off the beaten path that that yeah. alone distinguishes it enough from the first one in my book to not be to not have the criticism of a recycled plot i agree especially compared to like other franchises we've seen where the sequel is like a direct dna copy of the first one this Mm -hmm. one like yeah yeah they did a good job of like veering off and like creating something unique here yeah and i mean in this point in 1990 technology technology was advancing genetics was something that was being talked about in the news and then to have this whole genetic lab be the reason that gizmo gets brought back into the fold and reunited with Billy and be the reason for all these wacky gremlins. It seems stupid, like, oh, there's this vegetable gremlin and spider gremlin now, but it's actually genius to me. Yeah, it kind of fits what was happening at at that time. And uh, yeah, yeah, the public interest in genetics and experimentations, yeah. Right, and it fits the theme of that fear of technology while also just being a great way to have wacky fun and appeal to kids and create merchandising. They uh, <clears throat> they actually, I think, do a meta-commentary on that as well, like on the new Gremlins and, and their impact on merchandising, because when Clamp first sees that electricity Gremlin, he goes, they come in electric? And Billy says, they do now. <laughs> and that just seems like something right out of like a 1950s, 60s TV ad, doesn't it? Like, like a commercial. They yeah. come in electric. <laughs> they do now. They do like, now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think that was maybe a meta commentary on the merchandising potential of these new gremlins. Yeah, yeah, commercialization for sure. Right, or at least yep. could be read as such. Yeah, 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What What did you think? Uh, and I, I know we made this comment around like aliens and how like Alien, the first one is more of horror, and then Aliens is uh, more action. Um, did this feel as horror to you as Part One did? No, it didn't. It felt more comedy, and maybe even more. Uh, I'd say the action levels were the same, but yeah, I veered away from the horror towards common comedy. It did, and like, what was even the total body count in this one? Was there was there a body count? Did anyone die? Um, Christopher Lee, who we didn't mention, it, it plays has a cameo, or that's a small role as the uh, lead scientist in the genetics lab, mm-hmm. famous for playing Dracula and and many roles throughout the Hammer horror film series. But right. he dies; he gets electrified by electricity gremlin. Oh yeah, electricity gremlin gets him. Yeah. So and like I one- think there might be a secretary. A secretary gets her tongue stuck in a mouse trap and then disappears. I don't really know what happened with her, but that's the only body count I can really think of. Yeah, I'm a little surprised we didn't see like more kills happening, but I, I mean, it is a different tone movie. I, I missed those scenes from like the first one, like the kitchen scene or the scene in like the school uh, classroom uh, with the science teacher. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I, did you feel like they could have like had more uh, kills here? Yeah, they certainly could have. They could have had more human kills and more gremlins kills. Like you don't get that badass scene with uh, Mrs. Oh, Pelcher in the blender. But, yeah, but you do yeah. have somebody stick one through a shredder. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. That's kind of an homage to that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. We, we, I was surprised. It's almost like it purposefully like avoided uh, leaning into like some of the horror aspects the first one had, and uh, I, I felt like that part was kind of missing. But I mean, as good of a movie as it is, like, I mean, do you, do you, did you miss like the horror elements? No, I, I didn't. But I mean, it's hard for me to go back and say because I grew up with this movie, so. I, yeah. I came in with no expectations aside from exactly what it is and sure, was surprised sure. because I did not expect much intelligence or meta commentary and, and I was same. pleased. Same, same. Yeah, this this one caught me by surprise. Um, what about, uh, who is that dude um, who was dressed as a Dracula the whole time? Uh, Grand uh, Grandpa Fred. Grandpa Fred, yeah. Um, I, I feel like his character really didn't go as far as I would have liked it to go because he had like this vampire who wanted to become a TV anchor. Uh, so I feel like he could have had a great like subplot there, but didn't feel like they gave that one much thought, did they? Really? I thought they did. I mean, there was a lot going on here. A lot of characters to spend time with. Yeah. And I actually, that led me to, leads me to my next point. So... We compared this movie to Scream 2 at the top of the podcast, and I think this movie does what Scream 2 could not. It it leans on the strategy of kind of maybe underdeveloping the main characters from the first film, banking on the fact that you're already attached to them. Uh, and it lets the new characters shine to me, or even characters that weren't as prominent in the last film, and gives them the most defined character arcs of the film. Like... You've got Futterman. Yes, he was in the last one, but he wasn't really as pivotal of a role. Futterman in this one, as we said, he's got that mental breakdown. He's he's like afraid of everything. He's jumpy now. He gets over his fear. He bests the gremlin who was the biggest threat because he could exist in daylight. He saves Billy, and he plays a role in the third act, killing all the gremlins. So that's his arc. And then you've got washed-up horror host Fred, yeah, we don't have a ton of time with him, but we know he's always dreamed of becoming a news reporter, and he grabs this 
uh, tourist who's into photography gets him as the uses him as a cameraman and streams not streams but he broadcasts live what's going on in the building he's the man on the inside and then gets promoted to a news anchor his his dream all along at the end of the film so even though we don't get a ton of time with him he's he's got that arc yeah and they're yeah, memorable that- right like futterman's like sinking this guy into the the back gremlin into the cement grandpa fred they're memorable characters and even clamp himself is kind of charming in his weird like ignorance of who what kind of like person he is and the influence he has on the world uh is charming in his own weird way like these are so much more memorable than the new characters who were introduced in scream 2 to me Oh yeah, the new characters in Scream Two are garbage. Yeah, that that that's true. Uh, I yeah, the, these characters that you, that you mentioned, I, I think, do breathe like new life into this and are interesting enough. Um, I do think they could have given more time though to the guy, uh, the Grandpa Fred guy, because uh, you had this great setup, a, a dude in like a, a Dracula costume the whole time, and I, I know like yeah, he broadcasted like one news segment from there. But um, I I don't know like uh, why does he at the end get like the chance now to be a broadcaster just because he had a camera guy with him? Yeah, I mean he was the the window the world's window into what was happening in this building. But we only got really one scene where he was giving the window like where he did the interview with that one like really smart gremlin. Like I I feel like we could have had like more scenes of like holy shit he's like actually showing. Uh, what's like the havoc that's going on inside like we didn't say did, did you do you remember seeing like a lot of scenes where like the outside world's like watching and like seeing this guy and like what he's showing i think there were at least a few and i think he had some more extended scenes that were cut actually yeah um, that yeah. scene where he interviews brainy gremlin i think went on a little bit longer oh um, okay yeah that's the feeling i got i feel like he was doing more stuff that maybe just got cut or something and then uh, what what was left in this version was just like a very short like yeah he found a camera guy he did one interview and then at the end like he gets a promotion it felt like kind of like a rush storyline in this version well when all the gremlins are dying and melting he's narrating that him and the camera guy are like hiding in a trash can yeah but I'm narrating that to it? the world I think there's one other at least one other scene where they're kind of um, walking through the the scenes and, and narrating to the audience what's happening and, and, like, are we seeing, like, the audience, like, people outside, like, seeing it and being like, holy shit, this is what's going on? I think there's at least one time where you see somebody watching it on TV. You definitely see Clamp watching it on TV from his office, and I think there from might even office, be another yeah. time where you see other characters watching. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I didn't, Yeah, for some reason, I didn't get the perception that, like, the outside world was seeing what was happening inside that much, uh, which I think is, like, so much of, like, this guy's storyline and being that, like, sole reporter inside. Yeah, I agree. Um but I don't know. They they chose not to spend too much time outside of the building, like you said with with uh, the Bat Gremlin. Like it would have been interesting to see where that went, but that really draws away from the main focus and that shit's going down in this building, and they got to keep them from getting out into the city. I guess yeah. It kind of reminds me of one of the Jurassic Parks where you have like a a Tyrannosaurus Rex running around the city, and um, it it is kind of cool to see. Like I think it would have been cool to see like the one flying Gremlin have more of a arc like you know destroy go like to the met or like uh the like the statue of liberty or something or like just hit up like a few more parts of new york and, and tear it up a bit like they, they could have brought in the city a little bit more if, if that's like your setting you, you don't think so um hmm yeah that's true i mean maybe yeah sure i would i wouldn't have mind seeing him go to the met but that could yeah. have taken some screen time away from marla 
from <laughs> that's true. Can't give give up for a time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. speaking of sexy, I think the <laughs> gremlin design is just absolutely incredible. Even more so in this movie than the last one, and I would go so far as to say that the gremlins are the second best creature design in horror after the xenomorph from Alien. Wow. What do you think of that statement? Hmm, I'm trying to think of another second, but like, yeah, in terms of like familiarity and like iconic, oh man, uh, yeah, you might be right. Yeah. Uh, well, shit. What about like Predator though? You'd, you'd put them after this? Uh, oh boy. Predator's a close third to me. Yeah. Yeah. But I'd have to really sit and think about that. That might be a good top five episode. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I hear, yeah, these these gremlins are so iconic and like, yeah, so well designed. Uh, I feel like, especially like in the birthing scenes when like they're popping out. Uh, yes, these yes. These other gremlin stuff that they, they, they looks amazing. I agree. I'm glad you mentioned that. I had a note on that. Um, yeah. I just think, and yeah, there's creature design can be anything from like the werewolf or, or vampires in movies. But like when I think of creatures created out of whole cloth from someone's imagination. And then, like, being instantly recognizable to movie fans, like, Gremlins mm-hmm. are up there. Yeah, I, I, ho- I hope they bring it back and, like, do more with this franchise. Because, yeah, these... I, and I'm surprised there were only, like, two movies here. For some reason, I thought there would have been a few more. But, um, yeah, this, this, this was such a good addition. Yeah. Um, all right, man. Well, let's see here. Zero to five. We haven't talked at all about Lady Gremlin, but my, my rating <laughs> yeah. scale was Gremlin's Cleavage. Oh man! Hey, uh, what creative lady gremlin again? There was she drank post- like a sex hormone or something. <laughs> it was really a sex hormone. I mean, I guess it was probably just like, um, I don't know. Maybe it was like estrogen or something. Oh, okay, okay. Hey, oh, what, one, one last thing before we jump to the rating. Uh, the 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 I, going back to your character comments. So yeah, new new, new characters were great here. The old characters like Billy and his girlfriend. Um, did you feel like uh, they progressed enough, or did you feel like they were kind of like arrested uh, development in terms of where they were in this film compared to the last film? You know, I do think they were not focused on as much. They didn't really have super defined arcs but they gave us that minor subplot where their relationship was challenged by marla which all works itself out when marla confesses to kate like hey i tried nothing happened um so yeah i do think they could have gone harder there but i think the balance was good they they still were in the center of the action kate saves marla billy saves the day in the end he's the one coming up with ideas figuring out how to fight these things so it's it's not like he's off somewhere doing God knows what. He's still in the center of things. I do think their story was a little underdeveloped, but I was okay with that to let some of these other characters shine because I liked these other characters. Sure. Yeah, I, I agree. The other characters are really cool. I, I would have liked to see a little bit more between them because uh, I feel like the movie starts off really well about like them kind of like struggling with the changes of moving to a big city and they kind of talk about how New York is, you know, what it is. And I kind of feel like the Gremlins are a metaphor for like the business and craziness that is New York. Um, so, uh, and it, yeah, I, I feel like that w- what happened between him and Marla should have been, been a bigger point of contention where he kind of just got off uh without getting any trouble for it or anything. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think it left me wanting a little bit more from those two. Gotcha. All right, well, that's fair. Um, all right, well, we've talked a lot about what's great about that movie. You've, you've gotten a criticism into the mix now, so this seems like a good time <laughs> to say zero to five gremlin cleavages. 
Yeah. <laughs> what do you give this movie? Uh, so I would give it a five uh, overall. Uh, like it's, it's it's so good, so funny, so refreshing, so smart. And I think they took everything that works in the first one, made fun of it, and then like added like great characters on top of it in a great setting. But from a horror perspective, I, I want to knock it down to a four and a half, just because they miss opportunities here to have like a great body count or awesome kill scenes. Um, and so yeah, for, just because this is a horror movie club podcast. I feel like uh, they, they kind of dropped the ball in the horror, which was a little disappointing. But otherwise, such a fun and great watch. Uh, well, how about you? That's fair, man. Oh, speaking of kills, though, one thing I wanted to call out. The scene where they're all melting in the electricity looks awesome, yeah. especially the brainy gremlin as he's saying, like, New York, New York, one more time as he's just, like, oozing and is like reduced to basically a skeleton and then splats on the ground and his glasses fall off. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's that a great literally scene. could not have looked any better. It was perfect. So yeah, good. Yeah, that was really good. Yeah, Blown away yeah. By, the, by the way these gremlins looked. Yeah, yeah, the effects were so good on this one. I'm uh, going to give it a four and a half as well. Oh, okay. Same reasons? I, we've already talked about all the things we liked about it. The horror thing is not my one drawback point. The drawback point to me is that I feel they really lean heavily on the gremlin hijinks, which works in a lot of cases, but there's just so many asides that just are totally unrelated to the plot, like spoofing Phantom of the Opera, like, (laughs) you know, gremlins hitting each other and being zany and making little cultural references. Yeah. It's still, it's funny, but there's enough of it in there that's unrelated to anything else that I, I think it starts to get a little tad bit old. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, just Thank scenes you. where the plot's not moving forward and we're just getting an exhibition of here's all the wacky things gremlins do and isn't this funny. A lot of it is funny, but I just think they go a little too hard on it. And it's only an hour and 46 mo- minutes, um, so it's fairly efficient. It's not like it's bloated with this kind of stuff, but there's just a tad too much of it to me. Sure, sure. I remember in the first one, too, they did a little bit of that, right? Like, you'd have a montage of, like, just gremlins being gremlins pretty yeah. much. Yeah, uh, So, yeah, that, that kind of... And do you think uh, it's meant to be, like, a metaphor on modern society? Because there's a really smart scene here where when they're interviewing the guy, or, like, the one gremlin who's, like, really smart, and he's talking about how we just want to kind of, like grow as a civili- as a civilization like our race or whatever and then it's like flashing to all these gremlins just like kind of getting drunk and like being bonkers uh is it a commentary on like a on on our society at all hmm and then he like shoots another gremlin yeah with a gun. exactly <laughs> yeah it could be a commentary yeah. on how like we're striving for civilization but at the same time reveling in things that aren't civilized and exactly we don't know if we'll ever truly get there yeah yeah exactly exactly that whole uh yeah, that whole idea of like, uh, kind of like, yeah, both sides of it. We're so busy whacking each other on the head with comically big hammers that that will never be fully civilized. <laughs> exactly, that's what's holding us back here. <laughs> Those big hammers, you just gotta stop making them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's what I like about Gremlins sometimes. Like whether it's like a tech technology uh, component or if it's like a, co- a comment on a human civilization or like some kind of race or foreign thing. It, I, I think it can work at like a number of levels and uh, I, I appreciate that about it. I agree, I agree. Uh, all right, man, anything else on this movie? Two, four uh, and a half from us? That's That's pretty rare. This is a... I know. <laughs> a high-scoring movie for us. Uh, last thing for you, out of all the sequels we saw this month, uh, favorite? Hmm. 
I think this, man. I mean, I think I gave Grim uh, Aliens a four and a half as well, but mm-hmm. I, if there's something, if you ask me what movie I want to turn on and you show, hold up the two movies in your hand, I'm going to point to Gremlins too. Nice, nice, yeah. How, how about you? Yeah, it's a close one for me too, between this one and Aliens. Uh, I think out, from, out of horror, I would uh, lean towards Aliens just because uh, uh, more monsters, more kind of scares, but this one was a lot of fun. So it's, it's two different like great classics, I think. So, and then I think I know what you would choose as your least favorite sequel we saw this month. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no surprise there. Uh, on the Friday the 13th, or no, no, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. How about you? I gave A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 and the new Candyman equal scores. But I'm going to go ahead and say that Candyman was my least favorite sequel what? that we covered this month, unfortunately. Oh, I mean, I still like the movie, but dude, yeah. this was one hell of a sequel September that we've done this. We've had yeah. four Septembers, but this is only the third one that we've done a sequel September for. Yeah. This has been far and away the best one. And it these really movies has. were all like connected to each other in weird ways. Yeah. Um, and I just think it's bookended so perfectly with these meta movies commenting on their predecessors and on sequels in general. I know, I know. Yeah, who would have uh, thought we could have like planned it like this? This is It works out pretty well, and I agree. Like This is probably the best sequel September uh, season we've done. It was, yeah. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, agreed. So yeah, even though Candyman's at the bottom of the list, it, it's a strong list. Nice. Glad to hear. All right. Well, everybody, that has been our episode on Gremlins 2, The New Batch, and that has been our sequel, September. We hope you enjoyed it. We're heading into October, so spooky season is upon us. Hopefully we've got some good movies coming your way. Um, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash horrormovieclub. Pay a dollar a month for as long as you'd like to and gain access to the bonus episodes that we've got out there. And that helps us cover the cost of the show. We greatly appreciate it. If you just want to connect with us, you can go to horrormovieclub.com and click on social links. That'll take you to a drop down that's got the link to Facebook and Twitter. On both of those platforms, we announced the movie that we'll be covering next week. It's also There's also a link to our Discord server where you can jump on and chat with us and movie fans and fans of the podcast. There's always a great discussion going on there about horror movies, so jump on and talk to some people. Let's see what else. Our logo is done by Amy Mae Popart. You can check her out at etsy.com slash Amy Mae Popart. And while you're at etsy.com, just search for Horror Movie Club Coaster Set. And you'll find a set of five coasters, one of which is our logo. The other four are some of our favorite horror characters done in pop art versions. And it's a great coaster set if you want to get some merch and help support the show as well. Let's see. You can email us, podcast at horrormovieclub.com. Until next time, if you're lucky enough to land a date with Haviland Morris, who plays Marla, (laughs) go ahead and take her to a Canadian restaurant and really impress her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't forget to order dessert. Maybe you'll end up as the Mountie. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> <laughs>